You're listening to L&D in Action, winning strategies from learning leaders. This podcast presented by Get Abstract brings together the brightest minds in learning and development to discuss the best strategies for fostering employee engagement, maximizing potential, and building a culture of learning in your organization. This week, I'm speaking with Josh Camrath. Josh is a thought leader, risk taker, and chief executive officer. He leads the charge at Bongo, a video assessment solution that enables experiential learning and soft skill development at scale. Josh began his career in sales selling middleware, eventually discovering Bongo in its infancy and taking on a commission-only cold calling position to sell the product. Just over a decade later, he has risen to the C-suite, leading the now venture-backed company into the future. Josh is also a father, world traveler, and chicken owner. Now, dear listener, if you are familiar with present industry trends or, for instance, follow Don Taylor's Global Sentiment Survey, you know that AI is top of mind for much of the L&D industry right now. While GetAbstract doesn't partner or work with Bongo directly, and this podcast also doesn't endorse any other products or services, Josh and the brand represent an important node in the AI-enabled product conversation. This is a complicated and sometimes fraught topic, as you will see, so I implore listeners to continue doing research on what it means to integrate AI into the learning process. This includes experimenting with new tools, including the new GetAbstract AI. You can ask it anything at all, and you'll receive a thorough series of recommendations based on curated, authoritative resources. Now, let's dive into the conversation with Josh. Hello, and welcome to L&D in Action. I'm your host, Tyler Lay, and today I'm speaking with Josh Camrath. Josh, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've had a career in education, in some fashion, digital education, for almost a decade now. It actually hurts to say that I've been working for almost 10 years now, but I've worked in the publishing industry where digital learning to supplement books was really big. I've been a content creator making long-form courses for best-selling books, and now I work with Get Abstract. And I've always seen these learning discrepancies with different populations, obviously. So in the university level, there's something really important about retention and proper studying habits. In the workplace, it's generally about learning and then applying. That seems to be sort of the biggest gripe that I hear from learning and development folks. How do we take learning and put it into action? But retention is always an issue too. Just how do we learn effectively? How do we learn the right things? There are many, many big questions, but the big one that I've seen since I've been working in L&D is learning and applying. And what I see is when it comes to systematic training in organizations, assessment tends to be superficial. It takes too long to view the metrics that represent whether people have applied what they've learned or there just isn't really any assessment at all. You learn something and then you're sent off to do the thing or figure out how that's going to impact your job. If it's something simple like training for compliance or whatever, that's a different story. But when it's something that really requires assessment, it just feels like there's always something missing. So I want to ask you, why is this? Do you have any idea? Is it a poor function of learning design? Is it poor management and oversight of the learning? Is it something else? What do you think? I think there's not any one particular item, but my argument would be it's a lot of different elements that all kind of combine together to create that hardship. And like you mentioned, depending on the application or the specific content context, there's different elements that matter and make an easier or more difficult or challenging environment. If I had to narrow it down to one thing in particular, though, I would say it takes a lot of time, typically. 
whether it's in the education sector or the corporate learning sector, it just takes a lot of time to measure knowledge. And, and it's like you mentioned, measure the application of knowledge. Do you think it, it takes a lot of time to measure and assess the actual efficacy of that learning itself, in addition to the amount of time that it takes to learn? Is learning just a long process and we've been trying to squeeze it down too much? We all know how attention spans are shrinking and everything, but do you think that's becoming an issue as well? I think in some capacities, yes, but there's been standardized testing for a long time and there's psychometricians that basically apply statistics towards the actual assessments. But, you know, that again, it takes a lot of time. And with, you know, adding psychometrics, it takes a highly educated, someone with a very specific skill set to apply efficacy towards question sets. And in my opinion, for, again, some specific contexts, that's like super, super important, right? If if you're, you know, using a standardized test or trying to measure knowledge through an assessment to get a job or have some kind of high consequence output, then efficacy is, is incredibly important. But oftentimes, from my perspective, being able to use the knowledge and like you mentioned, apply that knowledge is ultimately what's most important. You can be the sharpest tool in the shed, but if all that knowledge is locked away and never actually used or applied, then it's not really adding a ton of value to the world. So your product, Bongo, I'll start with this. My girlfriend is a doctor and we have talked a good amount about her dissertation process and how she earned her PhD. And I actually had an even longer conversation more recently with her close friend who just finished defending her dissertation. And Bongo kind of feels like it's taking a page from that sort of dissertation defense based on the research that I've done. You know, it it seems like what you're asking people to do or what the product does is it asks people to present their knowledge as a video primarily, but literally present them as people speaking about the topic to demonstrate that they not only have learned something, but they understand the importance of it and how to apply it and that they have, you know, deeper understanding as to how that knowledge will impact what they do. Is this where learning needs to go? Do we all need to just take everything that we learn more seriously, not, you know, as a proper dissertation, but do we need to take what we learn, teach it to others, present it? Is that kind of what we have to start doing if we want to really apply effectively and and grow based on our new knowledge? Of course, I'm a little biased because, you know, I I think uh, experiential exercise and having a use case with like a teach back is an incredibly effective and powerful form of both demonstration of knowledge, but also it moves the needle quite a bit on combating the forgetting curve as well. And, you know, I think a dissertation defense, we actually have that as a use case for a number of doctoral programs in the education sector. And I think that is spot on in terms of the culmination of what Bongo is capable of, uh, both being able to have someone go through that experiential exercise and just go through the workflow of putting their knowledge into action but also getting feedback, whether it's human-driven feedback or AI feedback, both on the delivery as well as the contextual, like, are the concepts correct? That's, you know, in a nutshell, what our product is or does. I think with a dissertation defense, typically that's a huge amount of knowledge in a much more drawn-out presentation. That's a great use of our product, but we find it, you know, a lot more frequently being used to just demonstrate, you know, can that learner, that person give constructive criticism effectively? Or, you know, if they read a product release notes, are they actually able to articulate that knowledge around that new feature set? 
So it can be big and complex, like a dissertation defense, but oftentimes it's just a 30 second or 45 second little video snippet of a skill demonstration or knowledge demonstration and helping that learner or that person really hone whatever skill they're trying to demonstrate. So I want to challenge you a little bit here because you mentioned like mitigating the forgetting curve. And what I've heard endlessly since I was in school is that we're not studying the right way. We haven't been taught how to study correctly. And I think we take those habits into our adult lives when we're learning. You know, in school, I was a big crammer. I would sort of study toward the end, but that was mostly because I was doing two degrees simultaneously and it was just a lot of work. But by habit, I'm a crammer and I do things kind of under pressure is where I always tell myself I excel. And we all know that's not really the way to do it. It doesn't feel right. And science has demonstrated that, you know, distributed practice is the better way to do things. And there are a lot of different systems established for what the most effective learning is. And unfortunately, I feel like a lot of test taking in school and in the education industry doesn't support that because we just aren't taught how to do it. And because of other factors, you know, that impact how students do things. And now as adults learn, you know, I'm not sure how much the habits really change, but to me, having a system whereby you present your knowledge still in some cases can support that sort of habit where it's like, all right, I got to make sure that I know this stuff for the purpose of this presentation. You know, like how can I demonstrate through this presentation that I actually know this thing? So I'm just curious as to how you feel about that. You know, if, if we're studying toward a specific goal, which is to demonstrate our knowledge in this thing, but not necessarily to apply it. I mean, theoretically, that is the goal beyond the goal. But that initial goal is I got to pass this sort of like video assessment to demonstrate that. So what are your thoughts around that idea? Yeah, I guess that is like an interesting take on just the assessment community or, or the workflow. And, you know, I was the same way back in school where I would cram the night before. And, you know, as soon as I would take the test, I would effectively forget that information. But that's just like not an effective way. Like the desired outcome of going to school is that you both learn facts and figures, but also learn concepts. And, you know, when you're cramming the night before, maybe you have a, a couple concepts that you can hit home on, on an assessment or, or traditional test. But math, for instance, oftentimes, you know, you need the foundations and the building blocks and, you know, having different concepts kind of come together is how you do more advanced math, for instance. That's maybe more of a straightforward, like linear example, but I think it's very relevant for like economics or really any body of knowledge. So I guess just kind of speaking to my experience, although that's how I went through university, Jeremy, the night before, reflecting back on how I learned all of that knowledge, it wasn't cramming the night before that actually taught me, if you will, or, or where I learned. It was sitting in front of the class and participating in the dialogues in the actual classrooms or completing case studies. So again, doing the things where I personally learned best. And actually, that's where most folks have the most effective learning take place is by actually doing. And I suppose I'd be the first to say that Bongo isn't going to be the silver bullet or the end-all be-all towards assessment, but it is a new way to facilitate, especially observational assessment. So like in the workplace, the most common form of observational assessment is the manager sitting behind you, watching over your shoulder as you make a phone call or do something. And obviously that does not scale at all. It's always one-on-one. -on -one. And, you know, that's really what Bongo, especially with our AI capability, where we've really spent a lot of engineering and, and focus is trying to scale observational assessment. 
And then, you know, certainly that example in the workplace is, is very relevant. But again, going back to me in, in university, having the conversations in class and, you know, having that discussion take place, that again is like a one-on-one kind of interaction or maybe one-on-two kind of interaction might be taking place in front of the rest of the class. But again, me actually participating is how I personally learned the best. Bongo allows every single student to actually participate in those open-ended questions or, you know, answering those open-ended questions. And again, it's both about the assessment of can that person actually apply what they learned or what they know, but also it's about going through that experience of having to articulate yourself or have a response. And of course, it's, it's awesome to learn at a university or, you know, at a one-week intensive onboarding kind of session, but ultimately what's going to be most important in your workplace is actually taking the knowledge and being able to just do something with it. Yeah. I want to dive into the AI question soon enough because that's one of the major reasons I brought you on is the AI capability. But I do want to just ask about the importance of optimizing learning while it's happening. So you're talking about, you know, actually having dialogue and and having conversations, especially in a university setting. But I think that's also really critical in the corporate learning sector too, is not having people be isolated and I think especially then learning just becomes like another task that you have to accomplish. Whereas when it's group or cohort based, it's just, it's much more serious. And I think you learn five times as much when you have conversation around it. But ultimately, what are the most important things that we have to do to optimize learning while it's happening so that we reduce that time to assessment or that time that it really takes to determine if the learning was effective and then improve it from there? How do we actually optimize learning live in addition to these sort of like conversation things or digging more deeply into the dialogue and the conversation? How do we really optimize learning live? For sure. I would say getting into a groove of practicing, you know, again, kind of going back to when we were in college, you know, you read through chapter seven and there's always question sets at the end that are multiple choice or a lot of times they're free response. And to be honest, I would just kind of blow those off. (laughs) But, you know, that's not a good thing. They're there for a reason. And it turns out whenever I would be struggling in a course or or a specific area, actually going through those practice questions was a, a good way to reinforce the lessons of that chapter. So that's just a good, I guess, best practice. But getting into a workflow or, yeah, just a, a flow of being able to practice what you're learning and a practice applying what you're learning both helps reinforce that skill with the AI capability. It creates a judgmental free zone of practice. So what I was just talking about with me raising my hand frequently in class, most people aren't like that. Most people aren't willing to raise their hand for every question and want to participate. The only reason I was is I didn't want to do homework and study, you know, and I knew if I participated, I would, you know, actually learn the materials. But that's a reality that people don't want to feel like they're judged by their professor, their manager, their peers. And, you know, that's a huge outcome of adding AI to our tool is people don't feel like they're being judged when they're just being evaluated or getting feedback from AI. So, you know, having an environment that's conducive to practicing skills or practicing application of knowledge leads to much better outcomes. I had not thought of it that way, actually. That's really remarkable because one thing that I've heard more recently, and I've been told this for a long time, but I think it was Lauren Waldman, the learning pirate who was on my show somewhat recently. She 
mentioned that we spend a lot of time learning when we're like not in the right headspace for it. You know, when we are dealing with stress or under duress or something else in our lives is impacting how our brains are functioning. And it's just never going to be an effective setting unless we can really calm ourselves. And in some cases, that means that we need to be in a certain season of our life to really be the best learner that we can be. Or it means that we need to practice meditative things and just learn how to settle ourselves into a better learning space. But the idea of eliminating observers, for instance, or the pressure of competition with your classmates or with your other coworkers and that sort of thing, and using AI almost as like a buffer in there is very intriguing. I will say, though, that at the end of the day, a human probably does have to come in and observe the scores and say, hey, like, you know, what does this mean about your performance and that sort of thing? But is that the point that just like adding the singular buffer into the actual moment of presentation of AI actually makes a big difference in how people present what they're learning? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, no, that's exactly what I'm saying. And and I would absolutely agree that from our perspective at Bongo, we view humans being in the loop still as a critical element. So there's that. And then additionally, having the judgmental free zone, you know, allowing for exactly what you said, people to get in the right headspace to be able to apply what they know. We didn't first see that in the crystal ball. We originally were adding the AI to dramatically reduce the need for human evaluators to spend a huge amount of time on evaluation. And one of the unforeseen outcomes that, you know, our users report back to us is that they just feel like they end up practicing a lot more. And because they're practicing a lot more, it's like three and a half times more with AI compared to human evaluation alone, reinforcing those skills or reinforcing that knowledge. And it, you know, ultimately leads to better outcomes. Okay. But here's the thing. Chat GPT is about a year old now, and that was built using reinforcement learning from human feedback. And this feels a lot like reinforcement learning from AI feedback for humans right now. That kind of feels like the direction that we're going. And that's a big step, you know, like suddenly deciding what metrics alone AI should utilize to determine how well somebody has learned something. The metrics of, I mean, there are a million things that you could choose. And I think Bongo has been the arbiter of that in the case of the product. You know, you're deciding exactly what those metrics are. Why don't we have that conversation then? What are the things that you think are important to measure, whether Bongo is doing that? I think let's speak more empirically. What are the things that theoretically, if AI is going to act as a coach or as an assessment system of some sort in an ideal world, whether Bongo is achieving that right now or not, maybe in the future even, what are the things that AI needs to be able to observe about humans who are presenting or demonstrating knowledge for it to be an actual valid coach? Sure. If you would imagine it into two different buckets. So there's the delivery. So, you know, how fluidly someone's articulating themselves. Those are actually quite easy to define, or they weren't easy, but it's a lot easier <laughs> to define across the user base. So things like confident versus nervousness, you know, how informative or persuasive were they? And we present that not as a definitive score, but more on a range, right? So in some cases, you want to be more informative or you want to be more persuasive. I would say in, in almost all cases, you probably want to be more confident. But how it's presented back to the user is, is effectively a range on a specific paradigm. Again, that with a bunch of engineering is pretty straightforward to define. The contextual basis, though, of like, did that person actually get the concept correct? You know, are they accurate in their information? 
that is, you know, orders of magnitude more complicated. And, you know, there's a number of different ways to approach it without trying to get too technical. We've actually taken the philosophical approach of keeping the human in the loop, right? So the instructional designer or the manager, the person authoring the assessment, they effectively submit source material. So again, it could be chapter seven, it could be, you know, product release notes, it could be an awesome example of someone doing a customer service interaction or, or a sales call. And the AI consumes that source material and then generates learning objectives, like what are the key aspects and, you know, the critical components that are probably most important. It presents that to the instructional designer, so it still keeps the human in the loop. And then that instructional designer or manager uses their human intuition to basically validate, yes, this is important. No, that's not important. And that's where the evaluation effectively comes from. So the AI is effectively doing, you know, in a way like the prompt engineering to do the evaluation around the content and contextual nature of the presentation. So we believe that, again, keeping the human in the loop, not just dumping all knowledge, like the entire knowledge base and letting AI figure it out, from our opinion, is that's just not a very responsible way to go about the calibration of measurement or, or calibration of the assessment. And, you know, our way, again, philosophically, is a lot more pointed to the assignment in question and, and relevance to what that question set specifically is. And you can also kind of think of it as like, whereas consuming all knowledge, like the entire knowledge base, that's like a hard drive. Our philosophical approach is more of like RAM, where it learned for that assignment and then forgotten after the assignment is complete. There's a bunch of benefits from a security standpoint of our zero-shot approach is what it's called in the AI world. That's what it is today. I think the other part of your question in terms of like from a future state, what is good? So today, generally, everything's centered around what's being articulated. So what is that learner verbalizing? And that's what's being measured in terms of like they're correct or they're incorrect. In the hopefully near-term future, we're targeting later this year, being able to incorporate visual components into the equation as well. And that's not necessarily just like eye contact or facial expressions. We've actually, you know, already have that in a development environment that we've been testing on. You know, when we talk about incorporating visuals, it's more like, where's that person clicking around on the screen? So being able to expand the use case of like, hey, learner, you know, not just demonstrate that you know how to greet a customer or, you know, how to argue your dissertation, but actually show how to use this product and the tool, you know, again, theoretically, it's not in production yet will know the proper click path and if that person's actually doing the thing on the computer the right way. I don't want to open up a can of worms, but I think I'm going to open up a can of worms here because one thing that has been an AI point of criticism is, I mean, it's been like more heavily like discriminatory things that accidentally pop up with certain tools. And I don't want to say that's the direction I'm going right now, but what I'm thinking is that the way that people present themselves varies radically. Like, you know, between you and I, the way that we speak the way that we gesture the way that our voice intonates you know the octave ranges that we utilize and even my own example of myself personally on my podcast versus me on the get abstract instagram when i'm on the instagram 
I'm talking like this, and I'm using different levels of my voice to really make it seem like I'm an authority on this topic that I'm talking about, because and it's also fun. It's different. But I would argue that like those are different levels of demonstrating understanding. And I've also met with people who have many, many different, you know, public presentation coaches and did Toastmasters for a while. And, you know, you can learn how to present more effectively and be more convincing. You know, that's a whole thing in our society is like influence. That's a huge thing that determines the path of nations, you know, who becomes the leader of this country. And you can fake it. You know, you can fake understanding something pretty effectively. So how can AI do this? How, and it's not just, you know, how do we suss out faking it, but how do we determine that like, okay, maybe this person, they're a nervous person. Some people are more nervous than others. And how do we determine that they still really know this really, really well? Because I do think that there are a lot of people who are like super introverts that have really elite levels of knowledge. So how do we make up for these differences? Yeah, no, that's a super good question. And we score on different aspects, whereas the delivery, so how many filler words are used and you know how nervous or confident are you, those items we currently don't incorporate into the actual like grade, if you will. That's left to the human. So, you know, we present the information and almost always that information is used in terms of like competent versus nervous, for instance. That information is used to radically improve the grading or evaluation rate. <laughs> like the human evaluators can score that part much, much faster. Where we do score, we actually call that smart scoring. That score is on the actual, did they get the concepts correct? Because exactly what you're insinuating, you might fumble along, but then still get the answer correct, and the answer is still correct. So, you know, we basically discriminate in terms of what we're scoring on. The other complicating factor beyond what you described is different cultures have different definitions of good, even within the same language. And that's been another large technical, I guess it was an obstacle. Now it's more of a feat that we've, you know, been able to more or less tackle. But being able to auto-calibrate our tool and turn the AI based off people's dialects and specific languages they're talking. So, you know, for instance, both of us are Americans, but if one of us was like a Kiwi from New Zealand or like Australia or somewhere, like the tool, you know, you have to speak for 12 or 15 seconds or so. But it'll actually detect that, oh, there's a different dialect in this language, English, being used. And then it recalibrates itself based off that dialect. And, you know, I guess you'd mentioned Toastmasters. Uh, we actually initially used TED Talks as the initial calibration for the delivery. But again, we would be advocating this is still just a tool, right? It's not the end-all, be-all. It's working towards making the evaluation happen faster facilitating an experiential exercise and hopefully radically reducing the need for time being spent on the human evaluator. But, you know, you had mentioned GPT coming out a, about a year ago. Just within that year, it's continued to accelerate and advance. And that's, uh, I think, a really exciting thing is, you know, and certainly our perspective is we want to leverage these tools to make life easier and make evaluation more authentic in terms of does that person know or are they BSing? <laughs> but we also don't want it to completely replace a human evaluator. We still want them to be in the loop. Of course. I, I actually was first thinking about Carmine Gallo, who wrote the book Talk Like Ted, when I'm thinking of like examples that come to mind 
former news anchor is what Carmine did. And then he turned into a public speaking coach, you know, really high level. And I shot a video with him and, you know, nobody sounds as authoritative as a news anchor when it comes to knowledge, you know, the cadence, the confidence, the lack of filler words, it's all perfect, you know, and you can be taught those things. But also, is it fair to establish that as the grade to strive for, you know, like, do we actually want to sound like TED Talks or are there other ways that we can demonstrate knowledge that is still authoritative and sufficient to demonstrate truth? That's a whole other conversation. Maybe I'll have you back on the show to get into that. But <laughs> you actually talked about internally at Bongo uh, having specific configurations for different things, right? So the news anchor configuration where it is, you know, the bar is extremely high and you have to present perfectly. But right now, it's, it's still more generalized. And I would also maybe mention, although we certainly are centered around video assessment and trying to validate knowledge and you know, facilitate observational assessment at scale, a huge part of that, and certainly our DNA, is helping all the learners improve on what they're being evaluated. Right. So there's an assessment aspect, but there's also other workflows that are in our tool that are really just centered around helping that person improve and learn. And watching yourself say like or um, those filler words 15 times in one minute, that's the, one of the best ways to iron that out. And that's, you know, really, again, in our DNA and, and ultimately where we started was more of uh, helping people practice their presentations. And where we're evolving is, and really what the AI capability is enabling is having there be more of like an, a, hard and fast assessment kind of capability. Yeah, I mean, that was going to be my conclusion previously anyway, is just that it can't hurt to, you know, be able to review your presentation to see yourself and to want to improve on what you see. It's even if we are going in a specific direction, like emulating TED Talks, whereas I think there could be a more varied range of what successful presentation looks like. I don't think it hurts to have that review option and to have some sort of a grade and assessment that goes with it. So. That's something to think about for sure. I met with the people from Synthesia AI when I was at DevLearn a couple months ago in Vegas. They do relatively lifelike AI avatars based on a video snippet and a voice snippet of you. They will take that and then they can take a script and turn it into a relatively stiff but pretty lifelike looking video of you as if it was you presenting. And it's pretty amazing. The directions that AI is taking us this rapidly is, is very exciting. But at the same time, I do want to ask you, as I ask these people, what are your thoughts on how involved humans need to be in most of our processes? Because these represent things where like, it's a lot, you know, we're literally eliminating ourselves by replacing ourselves identically with video, or in this case, trying to emulate what a person would do as assessment which you've already mentioned, you know, there's a valid thing about putting a buffer between an individual learning and a pressure-inducing professor or teacher or a system like that. But still, you know, this is another example of removing people, reducing the time that people need to spend on something like assessment. So, you know, what are your general thoughts on this, not just from a Mongo perspective, organizational perspective, but societally? Like, where does the buck stop where we actually don't want to remove humans from these processes? Yeah, I would argue that humanity needs to continue to evolve. And I think a, a great example is, you know, when Excel came out, my dad's a, an accountant. You know, I'm sure that 
people were like, holy smokes, like this is going to replace all the bookkeepers and all the accountants. And all that it really did ultimately is increase the expectation and the expected output. You would never think of trying to run a company with a paper ledger <laughs> anymore. You know, now it's just a, an integral part. Excel is an integral part of every business. And, you know, my opinion or perspective is, you know, AI tools are going to continue to work their ways into the different facets of how we live our lives. And, you know, a big part of most of our lives is working. I guess that would be my answer there. But with the uh, example that you gave, to my understanding, you know, they're leveraging AI heavily, very similar to how most LMSs are, like making it really easy to create content and to like democratize content creation, essentially. Whereas, you know, Bongo, we've asked ourselves, like, is that a direction we should go? And ultimately, at least initially, we chose to, instead of it making it easier to create questions, if you will, we're trying to leverage that kind of capability to do actual, like, was that person correct? Can they take the content that they learned from and actually do something with it? So again, a little bit of a different philosophical approach on how we're trying to apply AI. But, you know, I think it's just going to continue to evolve and get more powerful and capable. And just like, you know, back in the late 80s or early 90s or whenever Excel came out, like the people that continue to try to do it the old way and aren't willing to adapt or change or you know, those are the ones that are probably going to get left behind. But I also pretty much adamantly would say, like, it's not going to come and replace everyone, at least for, you know, decades. I'm not so concerned about replacing people. I'm concerned about something along the lines of the degradation of knowledge. I don't want to say it's that severe, but the path that we're on, again, I've worked adjacent to the education industry in some way. And I have seen even in like the three years that I was in sales at a major publishing company, the speed with which we are abbreviating our books, the speed with which we are creating faster working, adaptive online digital education tools, the speed with which we are able to learn something by Googling it and allowing whatever the algorithm has determined to be the top answers to teach us. The way that we learn is just constantly changing. And that's kind of what I'm talking about. Like, where does the buck stop in terms of like how we determine the knowledge that teaches us in the future. So I like that what you've described is you're not removing the human from the process. It's still very much reliant on an expert who is creating the knowledge base, the source material, who's choosing or creating the source material that goes into what learners have to then present on via Bongo. Like I, I like that system a lot, but the ability of AI to determine how accurately somebody is presenting that information back is another step in the direction of we are letting an algorithm, a non-human source, determine how well we know something. And this isn't even as severe as something like, you know, if I Google the ingredients of a cake, like I'm probably going to get a few different answers. Like that to me is a wild thing that like, you know, I, I mean, it's not that wild, but an algorithm is telling me the answer to questions. You know, where can I find this bird? Yada, yada, whatever. An algorithm is going to tell me the answer by favoring one source on the internet because of XYZ. And in this case, an algorithm or a computer program is going to determine whether I'm correct and accurate enough and that I understand the concept because of XYZ. You know what I'm saying? Like because of an input to an algorithm. And that to me is the question that I'm asking is like, where does the buck stop in terms of allowing 
a piece of code to determine our knowledge as opposed to something passed down between people more directly, which we're already very deep into this, as I said, because of how we learn in Google and everything. But this does seem to me to be a pretty serious step if we're starting to determine whether we actually know something via the code itself. Like now the code is saying whether we're correct. You know what I'm saying? Totally. No, and, and I would say the reality of what you're describing, like the abbreviation of knowledge into oblivion, <laughs> that problem represents a, a massive opportunity for tools like Bongo of sure algorithms might make it easier to access information and you know make it easier to consume it with the abbreviations you know but at the same time there's tools like Bongo that work towards measuring does that person do they actually learn or do they actually just read the cliff notes and, and you know they actually didn't read the book <laughs> so if that's the problem maybe a, another way to answer it is any time throughout history, there's been better weapons that have been invented. You know, several years or several decades later, better armor also comes about, <laughs> right? We make guns and, and bullets, like all of a sudden uh, tanks come out and then armor piercing bullets and then reactive armor. And maybe that's for like warfare, but I think it's a similar analogy towards, you know, how we're approaching it is there's tools like GPT. Or, you know, there's lots of different AI capabilities, you know, where they're algorithmically making it either content authoring or access to content easier and faster. Then at the same time, there's tools like Bongo on, in terms of like, well, trying to measure, did that person actually learn or can they actually apply what they learned? Is the desired output application of knowledge, you know, that's, you know, for a lot of organizations, what's most important. Being able to measure that is effectively like the angle we're going I see your analogy about weapons and armor, but where are we in the modern world with weapons right now? Like, our weapons could destroy humanity. Like, it, that, it's pretty well known that, you know, nuclear warfare has been something that is capable of erasing us from the planet if it went wrong, because that's how strong our weapons are now. And my point there is that the only thing that has kept us in it, despite the power of our weapons that we've decided to create, is some sort of realization among us that said, okay, we kind of got to chill. Like, yeah, we're still going to have wars, but like now we have, you know, the Geneva Convention and we have like expectations for what we're actually allowed to do. We have regulations around it and we also have the powers that be ostensibly working very hard. And that's kind of my concern is like, will knowledge reach that point of oblivion, as you said, where we actually have to set regulations? I mean, the internet is already regulated in many ways and that sort of thing. But are we going to have to identify, all right, our knowledge has grown so futile and maybe even just fake news and misinformation is an example of this. Like knowledge has become so fraught and futile in the way that we consume it that we really need to like rethink how we're doing this entirely. I actually think we're a lot closer to this like point of no return. Than, and I'm not saying that AI is the reason for this. I think it's been happening since before AI, but... I think you have an, a, an important perspective on this as somebody who creates a tool that, you know, has some sort of power on that. You know what I'm saying? It's a big question. Totally. And the fake news problem, like the first several months, you know, when all the fake news became like a big like thing, you know, it was pretty difficult to like distinguish, okay, is that real? Or it was like very believable. And then it made people question like, okay, like, is that real? Or is that like bull? So like it was a big thing, a big dangerous thing and you know, talked about a ton and 
there were almost certainly a lot of bad things that happened from it, you know, initially, but humanity adapted effectively and combated it. And maybe there's a little bit of regulation that took place. I think with AI and, you know, nuclear weapons analogy, like the consequences are probably harsher and can happen much faster. I would agree with that. And maybe initially, like, again, just sticking to the analogy, how it was combated was the mutually assured destruction, right? So then that led to a bunch of agreements and effectively regulation, you know, but now as technology continued to advance, like you look at the Iron Dome system in, in Israel, like there has to be systems like that, you know, or like lasers that, you know, are on planes that shoot missiles out of the sky. Like those are forms of effectively armor that people invent, you know, and come up with. And to loop it back around to your question within knowledge and access to it, the world's adapting and, and evolving super, super quickly right now. And I think that's one of the reasons it's scary for a lot of folks. And I think the companies or organizations that try to be responsible with it, you know, again, like to think Bongo is leveraging this kind of capability responsibly and really cautious with wanting humans to continue to be in the loop and continue to be like the final validator, if you will. I like to think hopefully those are the ones that will prevail because people will look at that as they're acting responsibly. But I'm sure, you know, certainly there's going to be bad actors to leverage AI to fully democratize content or to create bad pathogens or something. Maybe with those that have incredibly terrible consequences, like maybe there should be some regulation. But yeah, it's, it's a really sticky question. And then for the next few election cycles, you know, hopefully that's what gets talked about. The system, like our society, you know, works towards self-regulating and trying to figure it out. I do appreciate that you want to keep humans at the center of this and in what you're doing with Bongo. I think that is very critical. I noticed that you hesitated a little bit when you were saying that you hope that those are the ones who will prevail, because I think we all know, you know, where the money tends to flow in some of these cases. The big promises that are made about certain tools that end up just being a little bit more powerful than we envisioned initially. But at the end of the day, it's good to have you on who can, you know, speak frankly about it and have that as the goal of your product as well. So I, I appreciate that. Right on. Well, I guess thank you. But the other thing with that is Bongo, you know, we have somewhat of an unfair advantage in that we have a decade of tens of millions of human evaluators that have graded people's presentations already. So we're able to have a few steps ahead in terms of you know trying to emulate humans as opposed to somebody who's just starting out today, like sure, they might be able to leverage the AI the same way, but they don't have that moat around them or, or that kind of, like I said, unfair advantage with human validation already. So I guess I'm just maybe qualifying myself a little bit by <laughs> saying it's not like I just have that altruism of like, oh, we want to keep humans in the loop. I do fundamentally think that's what is best, but I also think that it's a unique advantage that Bongo has compared to some of our competitors. Yeah, absolutely. I see that too. Well, we're running up on time here. Before I let you go, can you just let me know where our listeners can learn more about you, your work, and also just Bongo too? Oh, sure. So yeah, I would say if anyone wants to just connect with me on LinkedIn, it's just Josh Camrath with Bongo. I'd say if you're interested in Bongo, uh, just go to our website, bongolearn.com. And we have a lot of information both about our product, but also just about how to you know measure knowledge and take this new type of capability and apply it into your corporate or educational settings. Cool. Well, Josh, thank you so much for joining me. I wasn't expecting to get into 
post-apocalypse discussions today. Haven't done that on the show yet, but I do appreciate it because ultimately we are looking at some big changes coming in the world. And I think it's an important thing to discuss in some form or fashion. So thank you for being the one to do that with me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me again. Yeah. And everybody else listening at home, thanks for joining us. We will catch you on the next episode. Cheers. You've been listening to L&D in Action, a show from Get Abstract. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player to make sure you never miss an episode. And don't forget to give us a rating, leave a comment, and share the episodes you love. Help us keep delivering the conversations that turn learning into action. Until next time.